welcome to this episode of Becoming a Fulfillionaire. Today's guest is Dr. Nita Bushan. Wow. She is also the host of The Brave Table. She is on her fourth book, is that correct? Yes. And you just finished writing it. It's gone off to the editing sphere, if you will, the whole world of wizarding and editing, right? That's right. And uh, she is currently a mama of two. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, she's married to another good friend of mine, Ajit, and we're going to get into all sorts of interesting stories today. Um, Nita's just got a whole serial entrepreneur history and has quite the emotional history that we'll dig into and just see what kind of wisdoms we can pull out. So my number one question to get started here, walk me through the earliest age you can remember wanting to be an author. Hmm. Ooh. Okay. Um, so I'd probably say when I was little, I totally wanted to be an artist, like a painter. So authorship was not even in the realm until I was like a full adult. And so, yeah, but when I was a little girl, I always remembered like coming home from school. I remember being like seven years old and just like I had a whole little, you know, one of those like paint sets that like, you know, they have like the little palette. I get them for Ari now, but like they have the little palette and you have like the colors and there's like a tiny little, you know, paintbrush. And then I had those, uh, it was like an easel, but then you had those, you know, like the Cinderella kind of like blank sheets. And every single day after school, like every um, area was like open for color and so I would come back home and do my little painting and show it to my dad and he would crush my dreams every time (laughs) yeah uh, and he was like well it was just like okay yeah this is great but you're gonna study and you're gonna do your math homework what age range was this through where you were bringing paintings back oh yeah this is like this is totally the first grade I totally remember it was age like seven till I want to say 10 so I I had a love of arts and you know just kind of diving into things that were not studies potentially um so yeah but coming from like an Indian Filipino household it was we had the arts because I was in a lot of this extracurricular activities so we would do like Hawaiian dance I grew up on Hawaiian dance and Indian dance and Filipino dance like that's kind of what you did when you were Filipino you had to do Hawaiian dance because it's just part of the culture but my dad wanted us to also learn like classical Indian dance Punjabi dance so Dance was a big thing because you had to perform when you saw the other cousins and the other cousins usually were singing or playing piano, which I did all of that, not the singing part, but it was, you know, to get to have this like sort of expression and you had to be really good at school. Mm. Now, was this something where, and just as a curiosity, I noticed there's like two paths that people take when there's stuff like this with parents. Either one, they become resentful and really dislike all those things, (laughs) or they become like a super achiever and it becomes like a happiness outlet for the rest of their life. Yeah, that's a good question. So for me, it was definitely, uh, it was an outlet because I remember then going into 
high school and there was international day so i my first year of high school i went to an all-girl catholic school super i was not happy i hated it i wanted to go where all of my friends were going which was lane tech but my mom got really sick and she had cancer and so i had to go where they they everybody wanted me to go which was this like very religious catholic school like the nuns were teaching it was very strict when you said you had to go what does that mean i mean it was so because we lived in the city of chicago in order to go to one of those i guess you can say schools that you had to test into because we were in the inner city if you can imagine that not the inner city but i guess it's easier to say the inner city because the magnet schools and the top echelon of the schools you had to get into otherwise you'd go to private school so because for whatever reason i didn't get into my top tier schools that would be good for enough for my parents they're like we're gonna put you in private school and so i was so sad it was like i was so heartbroken because everyone else got into those top tier schools which is lane tech and whitney young at the time And they're like, nope, you're going to go to this all-girl private school run by the nuns. And I was so devastated, but also my mom was sick. And so it was like her wish for me to get educated by the Jesuits because she was like Catholic. So when you say had to, you really meant societally, culturally, familiarly had Had to. to. Mm. Or else the amount of shame and guilt laid on you would have been so thick. Yes, And actually, I kind of did get my way, though, because in the following year, my mom did get really sick where my parents couldn't afford to pay the tuition to go to this private school. So in some weird way, I, you know, got... Don't use the word manifest. (laughs) Right? I kind of manifested my way back into the school I'd always wanted to go to. But segueing into, uh, you know, International Day and dance, that's really what I took into even the school that I didn't really like because I knew I could perform. I knew that dancing was then an outlet because it kind of, it's just a cultural thing. You kind of go into dance when you were younger and then you're either practicing or performing on the weekends and or you're, you know, doing these sort of showcases. Piano was another thing. So I had my outlets of creative expression in a way but I always knew that uh, my happy place then going to the school that I wanted to go to which was Lane Tech it was really it was a diverse huge melting pot there was a thousand kids it was in the city I mean so many different cultures and we had this international day where you had the Cambodian club, you had the Vietnamese club, you had the Hawaiian club, you had the Indian club, you had the Pakistani club, you had the Mexican club. I mean, Guatemalan, like every single culture was represented. And honestly, white was the minority because we had just such a array of culture. And this is what you look forward to every year. And people would come from all over just to see all of these cultural dances and yeah that was that was my creative outlet and expression now did you continue that creative expression into medical school and i mean dentist school right so 
in a way, yes, because you would always perform on friends' weddings. And that was a thing because the Indian weddings is huge. And it's, it's kind of like, okay, I feel like a lot of us go through the years of all of the, you know, the dance routines and everything only to create like a medley of songs for the friends or, you know, the friends uh, wedding or a relative's wedding, but it was, it's really part of, you know, South Asian culture. So, yeah. Mm. Now, once you, how did you make the decision to go to dental school? Like, I'm like who I know and who that person must have been Mm. are very different people. What was that decision-making process like? Yeah. So to tell you that story, I'd have to go back into kind of like my years in high school So when my mom was really sick with cancer and she had breast cancer and she had it when I was 10 and, you know, I became the caretaker of the home. I was raising my two younger brothers at the time and it was really devastating for my Indian father who was seemingly, you know, strict from the outside. He was very protective of his family but didn't really know how to emotionally regulate and even cope with the fact that his wife could be dying. And we had a lot of financial issues at the time and my dad was like, okay, you can get a job. And so I, my, one of my first jobs, it was at a dental office <clears throat> on Saturdays. And I mean, I would be working three jobs during that time in high school but one of them it was always a staple it was like saturday mornings i'm gonna work for and you guys this is like so crazy shout out to dr horrible <laughs> that was his name can we, can we also just have a shout out to like i'm sorry for middle school <laughs> i'm really sorry about that for whenever he had that <laughs> i mean seriously yeah Horrible. It was so we would pronounce it horrible because you wouldn't want new patients to get super scared that this like hor- he's a horrible horrible dentist. Like what? So never mind. Shout out to his entire life. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, he also has kids. So and, and his daughter took took over his practice. Shout out to her, Kirsten. That's totally like a, a either he's a monk and has just accepted that, or maybe illegally change it. He he didn't know, and he he came from a lineage of dentists. So his mom was a, a dentist, and it's crazy. But Doctor Horrible, yeah, and and you can't not. It's like hor hor. It's like H O R horrible horrible horrible. Anyways, anyways, he was the nicest man. He literally became my mentor. Started working for him at 15 years old, and I was, this is at a time where I was like this rebellious teenager, so I would want to go out with my friends on Saturday night, and Dr. Horrible would hear, because he also had a daughter about my age, he would hear these like conversations that I'm having in between, like patients are, you know, I have to like get the patients, seat them in the chair. I don't even know how he had me working for him as like a teenager, but I'm like fighting with my dad and I'm like, I'm going to go to the party after, after work today. And then he was like, no, you're not. You're going to see your mom in the hospital. And so it was like all these things, but I would set up the trays for him. I would answer the phone calls, you know, and I would book appointments for people. So what I recognized during that time was I, even though I was going through really hard turmoil, having to subconsciously kind of go through the fact that I'd probably be losing my mom because she was getting so sick. 
Um, and I was acting out with my father, not wanting to, he was trying to control me and protect me because he was also going through a loss. We were all grieving, but I saw this outlet where I'm like, okay, these patients are coming in for a root canal on a Saturday or getting their crown done on a Saturday. And I'm answering their phone, you know, seating them in their chair. And here I am getting this like whiff of like, oh, I'm important in a different way. I can make people laugh. I can make people, I can entertain them. And I don't have to sit in my like, the, the sadness of whatever was transpiring mm-hmm. and the things that I couldn't control. Couldn't control that my dad was strict. Couldn't control that my mom was kind of nearing her end of life. I didn't even want to look into that. And But what I could control is, okay, how how I was bantering with Dr. Horrible and being his assistant and learning all the things about the mouth and helping the psychology of people coming into the office feel better about themselves and like literally instantly change their experience of being at a dental office on a Saturday morning. Because who would want to ever be there on a Saturday morning? Let's be honest. So segueing that, that was my first and longest position because it was a Saturday job. Most friends would probably be working at the mall or something like that. I chose to be very responsible and do that. So literally for years, starting at 15 years old, that was my routine for probably, I want to say a decade. I worked for him until I worked for him through college. Yes. And And then it was after, well, right when I got into dental school. So he was the impetus for everything. I wanted to have flexibility. I was really good with my hands. I used to play the piano for 10 years. Don't ask me to play now because I only memorized everything because that's what a good student does, right? And, um, And so, and of course, merging my creativity with my hands because I did love art. That was kind of the next step to go into dentistry and I love making people feel really good so I had that sort of personality but I started that whole process because of thank you Dr. Horrible like literally that was my my first uh initiation into what would be you know entrepreneurship if you could just quickly drop a wisdom bomb on me what do you think was the biggest I always say like when we have mentors in life, there's certain mm-hmm. attributes or characteristics we take away from them that mean a lot to us. And we're like, oh, I'm going to be like blank mm-hmm. in this way. What do you think you took from 10 years working with this person and, and like looking up to them? Yeah, I think it was for me, it always meant that it was a safe space and a safe place to be myself when everything kind of in my world was just like trauma, 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 you know, losing my mom, then a year later, losing my brother and that, and that was unexpected completely. He had been through some of those really dark days and without judgment. Like, I I feel like I remember... (laughs) (laughs) leaving his office like unlocked over the weekend you know probably going off with the boyfriend or whoever I was dating at the time 
there was never any judgment. He always, and I think he was just the opposite of my father because my father was like very Punjabi, very loud, always like screaming, yelling. And to his benefit and to his, you know, to just honor his legacy, he was a great father. But I think also he had just so much stress and overwhelm and angst with him. So he wanted to protect me as much as he could. And I'm like trying to get as much freedom because here I am feeling like I have to take care of the entire family, hold up everybody. But then on Saturday mornings, I would go into this office and just hang out with patients and make them feel good, make them feel heard, make them feel seen, make them feel loved in a way where they didn't know what I was going through and there was no judgment. And I feel like he was, Dr. Horrible was like the overseer of that, where it was like, come as you are. You are welcome. You are appreciated. He's like a secondary father figure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because he, there was no judgment, you know, it was full acceptance and not even asking if I was even going to go into dentistry. It was just kind of like this. It, it, it almost felt like the arms were just wide open. Whereas with my father, it was expected that I would be a doctor, dentist, lawyer, engineer. I mean, mostly, you know, doctor, medical profession. So that was that was a huge, I would say, um, definitely foray into uh, my, my, my deciding factor of, of dentistry. Hmm. So I have a huge question for you that I hope you can answer. Yeah. So in this respect, you've had at minimum three parents, mm-hmm. at least parental figures in your life. Mm-hmm. And you have currently two kids. Mm-hmm. What's your, in one paragraph, philosophy of how you're going to parent them at that mm-hmm. age? If you could look into that now and say, like, what's the harmony that you formed between those three figures? Mm. So... And I have to say this, preface this too, because I I would even say that I've had, you know, several parental figures because even during the time when my parents were going through the roughest moments in their life, because then my mom actually passed of cancer when I was 16. Mm -hmm. My brother passed a year later. And so you know, we had to have my external family step in. So my grandmother stepped in. She's very maternal and she's like the matriarch of our family. My mom's mom, my grandmother's sister also stepped in also like fierce Leo and very much like they were like the Filipino, uh, lions, the lionesses in our family. So they like held everyone together. So my, aunt or my grandmother's sister was the one who essentially was at my mom's bedside while she was like dying in her last days and I always looked up to my grandmother and my aunt my mom's aunt or my grandmother's sister because they just they exuded not only so much in terms of female entrepreneurship like my grandmother was a she was a teacher but she also had various you know, uh, passions that she loved. But during our deepest, darkest times, she basically, they raised us. On top of that, then you have my dad's sister who also stepped in when my dad then got diagnosed of cancer and then passed, um, you know, 10 months later. So this all happened all before I was 19. 
<clears throat> yeah, so when I say I've been raised by full matriarchs on both sides of my family, and then having Dr. Horrible being, you know, such a great mentor in my life, we've I've been so lucky and blessed to have all of these women, and it really, you know, takes a village to raise kids, especially, you know, I was at a prime stage of my life. I was a teenager. Like going through the traumas and the tragedies that I went through, literally when everything was going down, I feel like something was happening from the age that I was 10 until 19. And so what I would say, which is so beautiful now coming back full circle, having my own kids and having a daughter and a son. So far. (laughs) So far, yes. Hi, Ajit. (laughs) But I think that, you know, it really goes, goes into having the discussion and, and really the acceptance of, you know what, this is your life and I'm going to accept you for everything that you want to do, experience and explore and keep discovering yourself, you know? So I I think that's the lens that now I get to choose those types of experiences. Because even with him, I see how my bua, you know, he's only three, but my bua is my dad's sister who you've met many times. And so she, the way she parents is kind of like, Oh, I remember like if my dad would be here, he'd probably say something like that because he'll say like, oh, God, don't don't do that. Don't touch that. You're going to fall. You're going to break your head. You're going to do. And, and for me, I'm like, yes, and you're probably going to fall. You might hurt your head. And also, well, what would happen if I don't like chime in right away simply because now I'm so cognizant of okay, well, my parents weren't there to fully support all of the grit and the resilience that I had to go through in, in my, you know, kind of adolescent life. But also, you know, I, I think there is a, a way where we can just accept and see the beauty of our kids trying to make the best decisions for themselves and not fully helicopter over them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So... Let's. I, I feel like there's a lot of stuff I want to pull out okay. um, because we have pretty opposite experiences with grief mm. where a lot of mine came later in life and mm. I, I don't, I feel like I haven't developed the skills to deal with that very well mm. and you've had such a long time with mm. this to be able to, to practice and study and you had to go through a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So would you say when your mom was the first one that passed Mm -hmm. did you deal with that right away or was that something that you had to unpack later so I think that you know grief and I've I've been on many many uh panels and, and discussions about grief I'm not the grief queen I'm not gonna you know take that however obviously I have a lot of experience around grief of course and I think that you know, it, it never stops. And I think for me that because a lot of grief happened so fast, you had I had sudden death a year or a year later. And with my mom, this was kind of like the slow death of grief mm-hmm. because you're kind of thinking from 10 to then, you know, she was in remission when I was 14. And then uh, when I was 
like a year later it came back essentially no she was in remission from 10 to 14 she had it when I was 10 had it again at 14 and then she you know for those two years she just you know it spread to everywhere and I think that when you see someone that was completely and fully abled because many of our listeners probably have you know elderly parents or parents that are aging and or going through something and you know cancer is one of those things where it affects a lot of people and you know there's there is something to be said about nothing can prepare you for somebody transitioning no matter what the age and I was really young and I was I remember praying constantly of you know Oh, I wish she could just make it until my junior prom. I wish she could just see me for my junior prom. And, you know, I was very much in that victim mode of like, oh, why is this happening to me? All of these things. I think our community, and, and that's the biggest thing about grief, is being enveloped in a supportive environment of love and support. And that's all we knew how to do. My dad was such a great proponent. He was traditional in one sense, but maybe subconsciously he knew that he wasn't going to be around for that much longer because he had us go into talk therapy, which honestly, looking back, it wasn't, you know, shout out to everybody who's gone through talk therapy. I think that if I were to do it again, I would do it differently. However, you know, we did talk therapy. We went to workshops where we had to bang things and throw things on the floor. You know, those emotional release workshops. Back in the day, it wasn't really called that. I can't recall what what it was actually called. But we even went through uh, grief counseling as a kid where you'd write, you know, letters. I remember doing this heavily when my brother, uh, DJ, passed away because it was such a shock to our system. And it was so shocking. No one had the words to even console us. No one even knew like what to say, especially having lost my mom a year before. So a lot of that early unpacking that grief in the traditional talk therapy sense we had. And also my coping mechanism became work, overwork, overdrive. Because that's what my dad, you know, he, he was like, okay, this thing is too big to bear. You're going to do well in school. Focus on your studies. Focus on your studies. And honestly, that's really, and especially when things got really tough. I I remember when my brother passed away, it was, you know, during the time of early decision making and applying to universities. And I applied to all these places because I thought I was going to leave Chicago completely. And this happened and I knew in my gut, like my heart sank. I'm like, there's no way I, I cannot leave my I cannot leave my dad and my brother. There's no way. So putting those dreams aside, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna suck it up, compartmentalize whatever that is, put it in a box, cover it up, pack it with really good wrapping paper, and I'm gonna focus. And that became my internal mantra. Like I'm gonna get us out of this really dark, dark tunnel that we're in, and. I honestly didn't get to really unpack a lot of that grief until then a decade later when I would leave my first marriage. Whoa, what a transition there. Okay, uh, we're going to dig into that. Why Why was it then? Why? Oh, ooh, I know that's, that's going to get tough, but... 
it's going to get tough for me to hear this story because I know you so well, but did, did all of that grief come like exploding out at, hmm. during that time? I think for me, I really longed to recreate a family that I lost. That was the whole impetus and that, and you know, I, I started a, a nonprofit called Independent Awakening that championed self-confidence and self-worth in women after this whole process. And kind of looking back and what a lot of young women get into is we don't see the self-worth in ourselves. So we find it in people who think that they could give us that self-worth. They could give us that, oh, okay, I'm going to try to fix that person. I'm going to try to correct the flaws in somebody else because I don't love myself enough to focus on myself. I'm going to focus everything to make everybody else happy. And so, you know, that white knight syndrome or the martyr syndrome or the giver, you know, all of those kind of archetypes, that's really, or the Mother Teresa, that's really who I was. I was taught at a very early age, sacrifice yourself because your happiness is dependent on making other people happy making your mom happy while she's, you know, in the ICU room with the tubes down her throat and uh, dancing or performing just so that she is, can smile on her face. And then, you know, getting into, uh, you know, all the accolades to make my father proud while seeing him also on his deathbed. And then fast forward, so all of the things that I'd ever done was, okay, to have this approval, this validation from the ghosts of my parents, my, my parents. And so that then translated to, okay, oh, men see me, they value me in this way, and they can also take that away from me in the ways of psychological abuse, emotional abuse, and even physical abuse. <clears throat> and so anyone who is in a toxic relationship or finds themselves in an abusive relationship where your needs are not being met, where you feel gaslit, where you feel that you are not acknowledged, these are all red flag signs. And for me, I always thought, oh, okay, but I can fix him. I've been through a lot. I could fix him. I, I know what that's like. I could totally fix him. Instead of looking at myself and saying, ooh, there are parts of myself that need to heal. Why am I trying to fix everybody else and not me? And there was a lot of ego and pride there too. I didn't want anybody to know that I was going through this thing in silence. That And, and I honestly didn't know that... I was in such grave danger unless until I actually was. Wow. You mentioned something um, in that story where you said uh, you were trying to like appease the ghosts of your parents. At this point, do you have a relationship with them in some way? I do. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. I actually, it was, uh, it was a, a plant medicine journey, a psychedelic experience that, truly kicked off this awakening for me in a very different light. It would kick off me leaving dentistry. And it was at a point where this was kind of post, I, I had the courage to, I had a, like a dark night of the soul and had the courage to leave my tumultuous 
marriage. It was December 31st. 20, was it 2010? 2011? 2011. Yes. 10 years ago. 10 years ago. <clears throat> While everybody was like celebrating New Year's Eve and I'm kind of like having this existential crisis, like I do not want to stay where I'm at right now. And I was definitely uh, awakened to so many things happening. And that's when I realized I have to fully leave. And I was, you know, emotionally distressed. I was mentally not myself, spiritually dead. And yet I had all of these trappings of external success that everybody would totally want. I was not a fulfillionaire. And so during this healing process where I finally hit rock bottom in many ways, it was a full initiation of okay, I'm just going to say yes to everything. I'm going to say yes to all of the healing. I'm going to say yes to whatever anybody brings to me, whether it's the form of books, uh, experiences, yoga retreats, breath work, like anything and everything. I'm going to just dive right in. So then fast forward to in my process of saying yes to all of these different things, there was this three-day ayahuasca, you know, drop-in. And I had been hearing about ayahuasca and, and ayah for a very long time. It's probably like three years into my healing journey and literally experiencing, you know, all non-traditional forms of therapy uh, from somatic expression to tapping to EMDR, like just everything. And then, you know, ayah starts showing up in my dreams, uh, documentaries, you know, I was still a practicing dentist, so patients were even coming and, and just talking to me about it. And and so I was hearing it from all of these different places. And so I was like, okay. And there was a friend who was like, you know what? Yeah, we do this three-day thing. It's not in the jungle. It's not in the Amazon. It's in Toronto. So, and me living in Chicago at the time, I was like, okay. Um, I will... Sure, I'll say yes, I'll go. So I was a little skeptical, but then I ended up kind of just submitting and surrendering to the entire experience. And this was also kind of after my first Burning Man experience as well. So I was very familiar with some of the plant medicines, but I had never been exposed to ayahuasca. And so in that three-day journey, I would like I would I would die many ego deaths. I would ask so many questions that my ego and my heart was so afraid to ask, which was around, are you really supposed to be doing dentistry? Like, because I had already started my nonprofit and I started to do speaking gigs, kind of a lot along the lines of my story in so many different ways. And I started doing a lot more outreach and, you know, with universities and colleges just with women and girls that my pull was being pulled elsewhere yet I didn't know what that next chapter was going to look like I didn't know it could look like coaching or, or anything else or even mentorship or 
angel investing, didn't know any of those things until I started asking those questions like at this yoga, uh, not yoga, but at the ayahuasca retreat. And so the second day I literally had a vision of, it was like, I was pretty much, I was in a ditch and it was a very dark vision. And this was kind of like the ego death. And the vision was, there was a, a, a brown bag over my head and it, this got really dark. And basically there was a, like, you know, kind of like the spirit or person in kind of like this very dark garment and has a gun towards my head. And I'm, I'm literally kneeling and this person's behind me. And it was literally, okay, what are you so afraid of stepping into whatever, everything that you've known for so long, what are you so afraid of? And those fears that I reconciled in that night was, yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to let my family down, my parents down, kind of everybody who has seen me as a successful cosmetic dentist with this really lively practice, you know, grew it and, and all of the things, shaped so many people's lives, but I knew that that wasn't really my core of what I could see myself three years from that point. I just didn't know what the other alternative was. And then the next day, day three of the ayahuasca experience, and for those of you who have never done Aya, this is what kind of tends to happen on that day three. It was all, it was like a party. And my parents were there, my dad, my mom, my brother, and everyone's cheering me on. Everyone's wearing white and they're flying with me. And literally I have the, the you know, like the visions of, they're so excited for me and so happy for me and I'm like with them and literally it was just the best feeling in the world because it was like oh my gosh they are they are rooting for me they are they've always been with me they're always there I never have to you know think otherwise or think that I don't have their support because they've always been there and so that really kind of turned for me just like that because when I got back to Chicago I did all of the financials as as I typically would right good good Asian girl with all of the skills right so like planned out all of the financials for the for the business to sell my practice and literally the Wednesday after I come back from Aya I put my practice up for sale and six months to that date, I sold my practice. I moved to the Bay Area where I would then get into, you know, Stanford nonprofit school of management to learn more about, uh, you know, the, the nonprofit at, at the time that I was running. And I then realized that I wanted to, you know, invest in people and learn more about startups and, you know, be a mentor for founders, which then led to, you know, coaching startup founders and advising female-led startups. And so like everything changed within an instant. And also it began my journey of, you know, the first question that you ask, authorship. Because that's when I started thinking like, okay, I could actually connect all of the dots from my past, all of the dots of everything that I had been born and raised with around the whole theme of grit and resilience and really learn how people are making decisions from the stories that they're grown, you know, grown and, and brought up with and the stories of their past that they don't have to take them with. And that literally led and opened the door to the next chapter of my journey, which was 
uh, starting writing the book, Emotional Grit. Hmm. Wow. So many questions <laughs> in all of that. <laughs> so the first one is to to tag on a second part to the question of the ghost of your parents and, mm. and also your brother, which I did not know about. Mm. What do you, what's their relationship like with you now? So specifically, yes, the parents, but I'd also like to hear about the brother mm. and what, what's been like the lasting relationship or mark that he left on you. Yeah, it's so interesting. DJ, he was the light of our family. He was the joy bringer. He was the mischievous, always funny guy. Like Three Stooges was a thing that we all grew up with. Yes, very much a thing. And he was just, he was the bridge between my brother Vinay and I. And you've met my brother Vinay. And so, because DJ and I, he was my first BFF like he was my buddy we were like partners in crime we were 16 months apart people usually thought that we were twins because we really we totally looked alike and yeah I mean when he transitioned I mean it was probably one of the most painful times of our life because and I say it now but there was just no way to even uh comprehend the amount of just overwhelming, awful, painful anguish and grief. And there was a time where it took me so long, probably probably even a decade, even, even when I was doing a lot of speaking engagements around grief and confidence and all of the things that I would a- get asked to talk about, I wouldn't even bring that story up until probably the last, I want to say, five years, six years. And so now my relationship with him has all been through joy because honestly, and, and so many of our relatives, uh, my, my relatives say that our, my son, Ari, because he was actually born, uh, he was born on the 13th of October and it was what, it was six days after my brother had transitioned. So, you know, in relation to those dates, right, it's just like a full circle moment where, you know, you lose somebody. Obviously, I was much older because I, I lost him when I was, uh, you know, I, I lost him when I was 17. But everyone says that, you know, Ari kind of resembles my brother DJ and all of his mannerisms and how, you know, Ari shows up in the world full of joy, just this happy kid. Super extroverted. Super extroverted. Will not go to sleep if there's people over. <laughs> no, he won't. Since he was like very little. <laughs> Since he was, a, yes. So that, and that's, that's DJ for you. Like he was always running around, making people laugh, like that's just who he was and for the longest time because I honestly had to step up in a very interesting way when I was young and help raise my brother and when it was just when it was just you know Vinay and I I started parenting the way that my dad was parenting me I didn't know any better so literally the joy was gone and because DJ was such a bridge between Vinay and I I didn't even know how to relate to Vinay I definitely you know we've we've healed a lot of our kind of brother sister like ambiguous relationship trauma because it was kind of like I was like his mother in many ways and 
And DJ was really the one that kind of held us together. And now that was gone. I had to step into this kind of like motherly role. And Vinay for years had so much resentment towards me because I was doing what I thought my dad wanted me to do, which was, all right, make him also become a doctor, dentist, get good grades and all of those things. Meanwhile, he's going through some of the most pivotal losses of his life at 14 years old. And so it was just a very different dynamic. And and it wasn't until I started reconciling who DJ was and how he was just this life bringer and that he was the life of, you know, the party, the life of our house, that there's a little bit of us still in him. Mm. You know what's, I've got like so many, there's no way I can, do all this in one interview. Now I've got so many branches here that I want to explore. But something, have you reflected on that you seem to be sort of a nexus for that type of personality mm-hmm. that comes around you? Mm. Is that yeah. strange? I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it totally makes so much sense. It's like he's always he's always around. Mm-hmm. And I see him in, in, honestly, in the people that and some of my closest friends around me, it's like, oh, DJ's energy. Okay, because he was an Aquarius. His birthday was February 7th. And so... Jason Goldberg. I know, I know. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. And the fact that... And I've told Jason this too, that there's so much of my brother that's in him. It's just... It's uncanny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so first branch I want to go down... Okay. When you first left the relationship and you got the courage to do that and the strength to do that, what was the internal monologue that you had to battle for like however long you had to battle that for afterwards? Like what were you, when you said you went through healing and you did three years of healing and then Aya showed up, Mm. what was like the first year like? Ooh, learning how to be alone. I remember I was, gosh, it was, first there was a lot of fear because I had to get a restraining order. I didn't know what even the first thing that you do when you are in a crisis like that. I had no idea. Thank God for one of my girlfriends and one of my guy friends at the time who really stepped up and really showed up for me. And they're like, you're not going home. My brother, Vinay, stepped up and he's like, I'm going to tell everyone in the family or you are going to tell everyone in the family. You cannot keep this a secret. There's no way. And I needed to let go of my ego because I just wanted to protect everything. I wanted to wear a mask and like hide my truest feelings literally going back into how I dealt with my grief you know 10 years prior and my brother was like no we have let everybody in you we have to tell you you have to tell Bua you have to tell you know my other aunt Mama Chi and so that was the stage that I was in so having really close friends that were really like you're gonna fall apart and it's okay and I I remember because you know I was a dentist and I was talking to some of my dentist friends my girlfriend and I was like I I can't sleep I mean can you just prescribe me something can you and she's like Nita you are going to feel you're going to feel and you're going to cry and it's okay 
you're going to break down and it's totally okay. And this was like the first six months of like, oh my gosh. And when everything comes down, everything comes down in, in threes, right? And so my practice was thriving. It was growing at an exponential rate during this super crazy low point in my life. And there was a lot of things that I had to go through in terms of lawyers and lawsuits around that time that made me extremely fearful of things. And it questioned a lot of things for me in a way where I needed to say, you know what, I I have to even let my staff in, my team in, because I had a team of 15. I had doctors, I had hygienists, I had assistants, and and this was kind of where I literally, I didn't want to cry or break down in front of anybody. I would drive to my office every day. I remember I had my you know big SUV, it was a BMW SUV, and I was literally spending an hour in my car just like sobbing and crying and just like in fear and shameful that people are going to judge me because I had this f- crazy breakup that was going on and I lost my sense of self. Like, what am I doing this all for? What is this all for? And here I am having, you know, one of the best months of my practice. And I'm like, please, everybody go away. Like, I can't even leave because I had to, I was the one doing everything. But it was also at a very significant time in my leadership of my career where I I remember I had to bring everybody into the, you know, into the office and there was a really, it was, I was going to court the next day and there were some things happening that one of my, uh, you know, team members was embezzling from me. It was like all at the same time and, you know, it was just a, a really crazy dramatic time and I had to say, listen, you know, and I had to tell them, I said, I'm going through this divorce and, and the thing is, is this person that I was married to was also a dentist. And so there were a lot of things kind of, you know, entangled, as you would think. And I said, listen, if, if you don't want to work for me, just leave right now. But I cannot do this. I need a team that supports me. And for the first time ever in my life, I had the courage to say, if you're not going to work for me, then leave. Because I had such, I had such imposter syndrome about even owning my practice. That was like a different thing that I was actually going through because I was, I looked so young. I looked like, a, you know, an Asian protege and. Well, you just turned 24 now, exactly, right? Exactly. So. Exactly. So it, it totally makes sense. But I didn't own it even back then. And I remember all of the therapy that I had started to get me so confident to even leave I was in improv classes, honestly. I was, and I had been seeing my therapist for years. And note to self, when your partner doesn't want to go to therapy with you, that's also a red flag. So when all of this kind of blew up in my face, it was the first six months that was not only the hardest because I kept moving for safety reasons, yet I remember going on like a, you know, a, a mini getaway just like to get out of like everywhere first it was it was at this you know this resort where it was all focused on mental well-being wellness meditation but it was all in the red rocks of utah it was 
next to Zion National Park. And it was my first time there, and I just fell in love. I'm like, oh, I've arrived. Like my soul, my nervous system finally was like, we've been we've been waiting for you to come here and like tap into the energy of this like vortex in this field. And I just felt so held there. There was a meditation teacher that was like kind of either doing like a residency or he was like one of the teachers there. And I just immersed myself fully in kind of like everything he was teaching. And I was... And that was honestly, even though I grew up with meditation and chanting from my dad, we would totally make it up, you know, because we, we grew up kind of, he would be chanting on the weekends, like for two hours, sometimes three hour meditations on Sundays, especially when he was like praying for my mom. And, and we would totally make fun of it. You know, I totally took that sort of lineage for granted until I'm back, you know, in this like very spiritual vortex and it's the first time I'm allowing myself to be guided and held and there are these shamans there who were also you know they were part of the Indian reservation but they were also kind of talking about life path and just all of these concepts that I'm like give me more I want more and more and more and it was like angels were coming to me in the form of guides and spiritual teachers, especially at this beautiful place. And one of the excursions at this wellness resort was going to, you know, going into Zion National Park and you spent the entire day there. They had this whole meditation. Of course, you're doing yoga at the time and you're just sitting among the energy of the red rocks. And it was like, oh, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. And so I knew it was in a place of just healing. And I remember I was with my cousin and I'm like, I think I'm going to get a dog. And she's like, no, you're not. No, you need to be alone. You have not been alone for ever, like ever. You, you have to do this for yourself. And it was such a battle for me because it was so hard for me to sit in the discomfort of not knowing because it's the first time in my life that I couldn't put a veneer on anymore because it was like the decade of trauma and loss and grief all just like came in a wafting like because mm, it's the first time you just sat with it just sat and mm. I'm like w w I can't plan anything I'm not trying to get into college I'm not trying to get into grad school there's nothing for me to study for like I have everything my practice keeps growing. I'm like trying to shut it off. Like, I'm like, I just like, what, what, what am I supposed to do? And so I couldn't sleep it off. I could, you know, I just had to sit with this really profound stillness of this is what the depths look like. And yeah, you can only plan for the next 10 minutes what is going to happen tonight? Okay, maybe you're going to allow yourself to cry because tomorrow you might have to go into the courthouse or tomorrow you might have to, you know, battle another issue with some other team member leaving you. So it was just, it, it was, it called on me on a different level of strength I didn't even know I had as not only a leader, but it was also trusting into my intuition, which I totally gave away to, to everybody else my entire life. And so it was really cultivating that inner strength of this time really sucks. 
and it's probably going to be the most miraculous and beautiful year of just exponential growth because a year later then yes I was saying yes to all of these different books you know um so it was like reading I remember it was like reading three books a week and then organizing you know what we would call like modern day masterminds of like women professional women who were also doing the same thing because I I literally left the entire community that I knew with this person that I was with and so recreating a community that were like-minded that were also interested in the things that I was curious about I wanted to know how people made decisions and how smart people had more time to do the things that they loved and not be a slave to what I was at the time was my practice and so in order to do that I needed to hire coaches I needed to hire consultants I needed to hire people who would teach me how to be a better leader so I could empower them where I could step away because I really wanted to go to that next conference I wanted to go to that next you know whatever it was so that I could focus on my heart to heal And whatever I needed to become in order to do that so I could still, you know, have revenue coming in on the side, I was all in for it. I was like, sign me up. And so, you know, the first two personal coaches that I worked with plus consultant on the business side of my practice really allowed me so much freedom because then everything after that, it was like everything fell into place there so that I could go out and you know take a month off and go to go to Bali go to you know have these spiritual retreats that then showed me more of what I was no longer kind of taking with me in this next chapter of my life so when people say the term healing and this is not one of the branches I really want to go too far down, mm-hmm. but I feel like I just need to patch this hole in my, what, the mental model I'm building, what you're teaching right now. Yeah. When you say healing and, and doing all of this work with these coaches and things, I'm visualizing like your heart, right? And in that heart, it was like at some point you decided with all this grief, with all this overachieverness, with all of these things, I don't know about overachieverness, but achieverness, that you would patch that with... Um, temporary family so like male affection Mm -hmm. and that eventually led to this marriage right and then once that marriage kind of fell apart you were like oh number one there's no way I could I could take another person because it's just I'm in so much pain now and there's nothing left to distract me that I've got to somehow patch this or fill this or deal with this hole in here in some other way And you were like, I have no idea what that other way is. And that is what results in a lot of the pain in the beginning of figuring out like, okay, what, what goes there? Like, cause you, it's relative, right? So you've never had anything else there, or maybe you did, but you know, it was your mom, your dad and DJ and they're not there. So you're like, what, what goes here now? And that was part of the journey. If I'm hearing you correctly, it's the self-love journey. It was the journey back to myself and Really? So would you say when you were like building the practice and wildly successful with that, there was a big element of you that did not, there was some non-acceptance or non-self-love going on? So I was trying to be a man 
when I was in a very masculine man. The way I led was very masculine. The way that I uh, I showed up, it wasn't who I was at my core. The only time where I was at my and not even to my not even to my patients actually thinking thinking now back into it when I was building the success of the practice early on before I didn't you know I hadn't left yet um it was all coming from a place of lack like I have to prove 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 I don't know who I am and that really had me attract a lot of energy leechers, people who weren't my people. They were just there because they, you know, they, they, they were either there for kind of the wrong reasons or they weren't like, it wasn't even easy. And And so in my understanding of this, so subconsciously you were attracting these people because they would give you more to prove. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so the journey back to myself was coming from a place of pure authenticity and vulnerability and radical self-acceptance for who I was and how I was showing up. Yeah, I was whatever, 27, 28, 29. Yes, this is my practice. Yes, this is how I am. Yes, I'm going through a divorce. So all of the things that I was so ashamed about, so... Uh, thinking that it was so awkward and something not to talk about, I started leading with. And when I started to lead with the things that I was so ashamed about that I wanted to hide from everyone, that's when the veneers came off. And that's when I started to attract people that are like, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm going through a divorce too. Or, oh my gosh, you're... I, I love what you're doing too. I, I love EDM music too. Let's play it for all the patients. So it was like small steps like that that helped me in really truly discovering who I was at my core because I honestly grew up kind of like a chameleon. Like whatever, you know, this person wanted or this person wanted or this person wanted, sure, my boundaries weren't intact. It wasn't until going through that full-on awakening Like I said, it was earth shattering, such a huge initiation for me into my own becoming of a woman that I loved and to date myself so much so that I even married myself in, in Bali. I had a whole self marriage and we're going to get a little woo woo for a second. Um, I had a whole self marriage ceremony, just reclaiming my unique expression and really honoring the love that I have for myself and and have it be a reminder every day that you put yourself first I just sometimes doesn't really like that you know because he's like did you divorce yourself yet because now we're married and we're together um (laughs) but it was such a beautiful reminder for me that going into this next phase of my life I was always going to honor my my truest value whatever that was and honesty was gonna come first because all those years I wasn't really honest and I didn't really know who I was and I was operating from a place like I said that it was it was it was dark it was coming from lack and so when you when your energy is emanating in those ways you're going to attract people who are going to project the same kinds of things to you like fear like 
low energy vibes, a lot of, you know, taking a lot of drama until you begin to fully start to accept yourself radically and wholly for who you are unapologetically, which meant that I had to say no to some of the friends that were no longer in that same energy vibration. Yeah. So if there's someone watching right now and they're they're in a situation or they know they've been in situations and they're continuing to recreate those situations, I you know, most notably if they're currently in it, is this something where you can do you have to hit the wall for this to really change? Like it sounds like you did a lot and it was really extreme and it took years to years. really deal with it mm-hmm. and and to move beyond it and accept it and all of that for that person that's watching is it just this will help them because they know that there will be an end when the they hit the wall or is there can they do stuff now like how does that like if someone had told you that all that was going to happen i don't know if you would have (laughs) just left right you might have needed to like hit rock bottom for this to work so i so with any sort of transformation and change what i know now and what i've written in you know, many of my books and even in personal transformation, we don't take, we don't take action if things are easy. We just don't. We're complacent. We, we don't notice that we have, and it's actually a concept that I'm writing about in in my book because now I've had, you know, thousands of these conversations in the last decade, really. And in, you know, kind of my research around this is we don't take action when things are easy. We don't even take action when we are aware about something. We need to have literally a fall. So those of you who are aware that you are in a situation, you know that probably it's not going to get better. You know that it may be easier to stay where you are right now because you're so afraid of the other side you're so afraid of uncertainty and that's what majority of us are so afraid of we're afraid of uncertainty we're not going to know what's going to happen tomorrow in that in in those you know nine months of my life where oh gosh I was like praying is this gonna be over are we gonna just be done with this divorce am I gonna know if I'm gonna be able to get some things of my house back or should I just start building anew altogether like it was just a lot of this turmoil of I don't know. I and and I had to really surrender that time and for 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 you, anyone that's going through this, it is painful to not be in that control. And and if you are in this and you're kind of like, okay, the fall is not a really bad fall right now. But you know that it's not going to get better then what are you waiting for? Because after anybody has a fall, and it could be a diagnosis, it could be a health scare, it could be you know, a friend getting hit by a car. I mean, it's, the pain has to be so great for somebody to then take a, to, to be ignited. Because the ignition is that second step. Okay, you're ignited to take action. You're ignited to take action on what you no longer can control. 
can't control the other person. You can only control yourself. So are you going to allow yourself to continue to be in that experience? Or are you going to say, you know what? I am going to change my health. I am going to let go of that friend who doesn't honor me, who constantly puts me down, who doesn't value who I am. Or I'm going to let go of that relationship where I knew it needed to end six months ago, a year ago. But crap, I keep thinking that something's going to change. What is that ignition? That that What is it going to take for you to ignite and make a decision like that most people will need that ignition which is that fall is there a way to do that that's more satori versus kensho i mean if anybody is open to it yes but honestly most people don't take action until things get so so in the future if there's someone who's like i want (laughs) i want the positive inspirational gas for change or ignition to change versus the painful kick to the pants change what what would you recommend yeah i would just take an inventory of your life right now and you know even if you are in somewhat of a fall you don't like your job you didn't get that promotion you your friends you found out were talking bad behind you and you know that they're not the best for you so these are moments of the fall where you can ask yourself a different question. Awareness and our radical self-awareness, when we ask ourselves, oh, well, should I be in this relationship? Do I really have to be in this job even though it's doing well for me seemingly, but I'm not really liking it? Those are some of the questions that you know I asked myself even with even with leaving dentistry. Once you start to open yourself up to that awareness, that's when you start moving towards a different reality that you probably never even thought of. Just because you're you're curious and you're operating from a place of curiosity instead of a place of reaction. Hmm. Okay. Next branch. Mm-hmm. So you sold your dental practice, mm-hmm. you moved to the Bay, and you're like, I'm going to do startups. Now, earlier you mentioned you had some imposter syndrome of having like that practice. And there's also another branch there of this masculine feminine thing where you were like, you know, doing business like a man in, in a very masculine way. And then you started to shift that by becoming more vulnerable and open with all the people that were working for you. And that really probably shifted the culture dramatically. And like you said, started playing EDM music and like all kinds of fun Nita things, right? Totally. I'm presuming when you moved to the Bay Area, there was a massive imposter syndrome. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Walk me. How did you? Oh my gosh. How how did you go from selling a dental practice to coaching startups? Like what? So, so yeah. And when when people ask that, they're like, "Wait, what?" So, I mean, I have to give context because while there was a period of probably two years when I was massively you know, growing my dental practice and I had dentists working for me. So it allowed me to step away. And, you know, first I would test, okay, I'll step away and I'll only do four days a week. Then it was three days a week. Then it was like one week out of the month, right? And, you know, we were still growing 20% year over year. And so I started to then do what anybody would do and start, you know, dabbling in different ventures and endeavors. And this was when I I think I mentioned I started what you would call like a modern day mastermind. And this was selfishly to 
really create a community, community of strong women, professional women. And I realized that we were all kind of going through, we were all still single. We didn't want to do like the bottle service at night, you know, but we wanted to ask different questions. And I was obviously the curator of these groups because that's kind of been who I have always been. I'm kind of this gatherer of of people. And every month we would just talk about these ideas. And also I had my nonprofit at the time, which I was doing more and more speaking engagements. And, you know, getting people to then perhaps maybe sit on the board of the nonprofit, it started to introduce me to a lot of different kinds of people. Again, when you are aware and when you're radically self-aware of the reality that you want to get into, your, your reality just begins to change. So while I had this women's group and then I had... So let yeah. me interrupt you with yeah, that. Yeah. Has there ever been a time, especially in the last, let's say, five, 10 years where you've been, you know, really, really aware of yourself and you've been asking these questions for a long time now where you do become aware of the reality you want to create and you can feel that you're blocking that energy of those things changing. Cause like you said, even being aware that you want something, it will slow, like little things will start to happen leading you towards that. And sometimes people can block those little things from happening or fight the flow of those things beginning. Mm. Do you find when you find that happening, because it happens to everyone, when you find that happening, like, what do you do? I mean, I still operate from a place of curiosity, you know, and I think that when we're, if we're talking about manifestation and, you know, allowing things to come towards us, it's you're, you have something in your mind, but you're really not attached to it. And you know, I think it's kind of, there's, you know, I guess the, the example could be, all right, you know, we said we were going to, you know, do this interview and we've been talking about it for months, but it's not like we were, you know, so steadfast on a date. Like it did happen. It didn't happen in those two weeks, but it happened in the next few months. Right. And so if you were, like, oh man, you know, Nita, oh, she, you know, she snubbed me on this or, or have a different response to that, then of course, then we're blocking our own energy for it instead of just coming from a place of ease and flow and curiosity of like, okay, didn't happen now, didn't happen the next day, but at some point it's going to happen. And you're still going to be curious about even asking me like you did. You're like, okay, yes, let's do it this time. Let's do it this time. So I think as we sometimes self-sabotage ourselves for whatever reason, I think for, you know, me in the context of, you know, all of the places that I was able to go to and, and even start bridging a new reality for me, it was, all right, I'm going to ask different questions. So even in the women's group, it was like, okay, sometimes there were 10 people, but then it grew to over 100 people. And then I had somebody take that over and start, you know, doing something else with it. Because I, I learned that my personality, I like to start a lot of different things. And again, it takes a lot of self-discovery and ownership of like, yeah, that's who I am. And I'm unapologetic about it. And that's okay. So then I got introduced to 
a VC that will completely shift and change my whole view about startups and uh, you know venture capital because this person was a venture capitalist and actually brought me to and and again when you're in a period of yes in your life like I was with ayahuasca experience I was in a period of yes in my life and so they're like hey you know you're a female founder this is what I was getting called as a as a female founder of a dental office and I didn't even recognize that I was but yes I was and they're like come to South by Southwest and I was like what's that like never heard of it you know and by the way we're recording this around South by right now so it's very apropos and just like full Mm -hmm. circle moment but this was eight years ago and what was eight eight or yeah this was eight years ago wow so you were 14 yeah I was 14 Mm -hmm. (laughs) you keep getting younger But it blew my mind away. It blew my mind on every single level because never before had I ever been exposed to that many startups, founder scene, just, you know, and and really recognizing the leadership skills that I saw in so many people, especially the women. And they were pitching their, you know, startups just like that, getting funding and and I'm like, wow, they're not validated by the right answers coming from a person that was only trained in medicine and dentistry, working in millimeters. So I'm like, oh my gosh. And I get this like zest for life, literally, because... Y- I, I don't necessarily like want to like toot your horn too much, but yeah. the fact that you were able to build such a big practice and sell it and like systemize it without friends that like without the connection to that community... The community that we like operate in now is mind blowing <laughs> that you were able to build that with without being without exposure yeah. to all that mindset and that thought where like everybody we know now is like, how do we hire this team and how do we systemize everything? Right. Like yeah. Eric Strauss is in the other room. Like, you know, <laughs> so the fact that you were able to do that and then get exposure to all that information and knowledge and books and people and uh, it's mind blowing. Yeah, I think it was it was it was a beautiful time. It was a really tough time personally and professionally in all the ways, but it was definitely a period of immense growth on so many levels. And it's literally, you know, what I talk about for so many of you who are like, how can I go from one career to the other? And you're thinking, how could I go from your day job to whatever I want to do next? And I don't even know what I want to do next. And how do I know what I know what I want to do next? Say yes to those opportunities that present itself. Say yes to a crazy weekend at South by, even though you're, you know, in your mind, you're probably not going to invest in these companies, but maybe there's going to be different conversations. Get out of your environment of where you traditionally are hanging around with. Like my community was all dentists, doctors. They were talking about Golfing on the weekend. Yes. Yes. Or on Wednesdays when you didn't see patients. And I was like, "There, no, <laughs> there's more to this. And I was serving on panels being a startup advisor to these women-led startups because then I got exposed to that VC. The VC sat you know, as a venture capitalist in a few incubators in Chicago, I wanted to get better at speaking. And so I'm like, okay, I'll sign up for this pitch training event. I'm not pitching a startup. I have my nonprofit. And so I'm going in there thinking I'm like this, you know, transformational speaker. And I'm sitting with 30 investors. I'm the only one that has like a nonprofit. They're like, why are you doing this? Like, what are you 
you don't have you don't have a business you're not raising money I'm like well kind of for my nonprofit and they're like but people were so curious because I was the only you know female that had you know obviously this very unique story but positioning and championing women and girls and guess what all of these VCs they were most of them were male actually all of them were male they all had daughters oh they were very curious at the information and they're like okay we would invest if you were going to create something <laughs> how can we help you and so I took that as an opportunity to ask more questions tell me how you invest in companies what is it that you do tell me about the founders you invest in how you know so it was just very much different conversations and I remember then some of them became my you know mentor I remember Larry Abrams he was to this day shout out to him just fascinating in my exposure to that world coming from a VC mindset so much so that he brought me in to actually coach a lot of these founders that he was investing in. And he's like, we actually need what you're doing. And this was before I even had my book, Emotional Grit. It was just the beginning of me even interviewing people to see how they master grit situations in their life before I even came up with the acronym for my first book, Grow, Reveal, Innovate, Transform. And so then jumping ship when I got to the Bay Area I already had my connections from you know the Chicago VC I guess you can say world and the incubators there because I was part of this pitch fest Uh, and what was interesting then for me was continuing the same conversation so while I was there I would interview close to 500 leaders from all different walks. And that began my journey of becoming an author because I wanted to understand how the mindset of founders work. 500. Yes. Over what period of time? Oh gosh, this was, I sold my practice in 2015. I did this for a year. In one, so you're doing multiple per day. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh no. And it was not just, so I was, it wasn't just like sitting down with people. It was also spreadsheet, Excel sheet, giving you a survey to fill out. And then only, there were only some that I was actually sitting down with and getting full elaborate conversations with to be, you know, to put in my book. And so emotional grit was totally positioned for leaders, executive leaders, top leaders. And that's kind of how it it literally bridged the gap for me to then get into leadership coaching. Oh my gosh, incredible, incredible. So walk me down a little timeline of the book journey. So you had Emotional Grit was book number one. I was in 2016. Yes. Book number two. Uh, Book number two, the book of coaching, that was in 2017. And that was a collab? That was a collaboration with Ajit. Yes, that was that was a collaboration with Ajit. We we wrote it for ten days, and a lot of the you know a lot of the things that I've done in collaboration, it's always been around you know emotional health, right? Kind of the the mentality and the mindset of a founder of an entrepreneur, and that's really my jam. That's my sweet spot, you know, because 
we all have these beliefs in ourselves, whether it's imposter syndrome, which is what I totally suffered from. And what I recognized was, hey, if I interview all of these people and I get their stories, I don't feel so much of an imposter because they're all feeling it too. Yeah. Well, and again, you must have realized like what you built was actually much harder to build than a lot of like our entrepreneur world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is like that, that sort of sweat equity. I mean, I'm so grateful for my time building a dental practice and for my colleagues who are now just purchasing practices. Like I purchased mine two years out of school. Those were some really tough years of not knowing what the heck you're doing. I didn't get an MBA. I mean, my street cred was my you know my early stage upbringing of having to hustle and working three jobs and managing everyone's mindset at a young age and that's kind of what i carried on uh you know did dr horrible help you he like i said he stood as like a a kind of you know this silent you know just person that was a very uh accepting part of who i was yeah. And so as you bought your practice, what was his whole take on that? So he was not in the picture when I actually graduated dental school. So I think I I left, I think I stopped working for him probably in my early 20s, like maybe even right when I got into dental school. And so after dental school, I worked for several different operations. So um, you know, government run operations so I can get my speed up with dentistry. And then I was so fascinated about cosmetics and the aesthetics and the beauty again, because of my love of arts, right. And, and that sort of expression. And so that's really what I loved. And I wanted to, I wanted to bring that because I thought that was such a fun part of, of dentistry. And I wanted to do more of that. So I started studying a lot more of the cosmetic side and, and, and also having conversations with people who are better than me as a surgeon that I could just hire that we could have a well-rounded, you know, practice in that way. So mm-hmm. I've, I've so many tangents popping yeah. up here. So what was book number three? The business book of coaching. So, so a, a big part of our business is training coaches to become better coaches essentially and to clarify how many businesses do you have (laughs) oh wow uh so i like to say that i'm an investor and i have my hands in in i I like to do a lot of collaborations now in this stage of my life because now as a mama of two i totally love the idea of celebrating and creating with other people that have amazing talent and we bring to the table in a collaboration that you know we are creating impact in different ways mostly around you know the themes and the verticals I love to go into is mental health of course emotional health these are all the things that you know, light me up. And what I specifically bring is curriculum development, you know, seeing kind of the operations, the marketing flow. And now we have teams that kind of go in and do a lot of the implementation. And so 
yeah, right now I, I would say we have one, two, three, four, five projects on the floor right now, okay. which is really exciting, which is really exciting. And so, uh, and so the two verticals is really on coach training and creating programs and certifications around coach training with the element of, you know, mental health and emotional health for founders. And that's really, that's really what it is. Yeah. And I feel like, and I'm, I'm going to put some words in your mouth and you tell me if this is right or wrong. Yeah. Your healing journey, you said you hired uh, at least two coaches that probably several. helped several oh. that helped dramatically, but right? The, the first two really helped me shift my view of business and my business acumen more than any sort of, you know, MBA would. And then you interviewed 500 leaders and then became an executive coach after having spoken with them and done all this research in the startup world and what worked and what didn't work. And of course, bringing your own experience through building your practice and then sort of automating your practice, right? To run without you and then eventually selling it. So you had so much experience with that whole, at least three year period is what it sounded like. In addition to going through this whole healing journey, which sounded just as difficult as doing everything you had to do with your practice so that yeah, that you was could... a five year journey when I sold my practice from the time that I got divorced. Mm. Yeah, there was a full... 2016. So I'm, six, I'm finally, six I'm six finally years. putting it together. Yeah. Like why <laughs> you're so in the coaching space is like, oh, because if you didn't have coaching, you may not be here right now. You know, it would be very different a world. Thousand percent. I and and coming from a background of you know immigrant parents, I, I think that you know a lot of times we're not. You're not able to have that conversation. You're not able to have that open non-judgmental conversation where you have to lie about everything and and or can't you know talk back to your parents or and and my parents they were great they did the best that they could and I'm honestly so grateful for them and you know did I wish my dad would just have these conversations with me about boys so I didn't have to lie and like go behind his back and he even knew what I was doing and it was like oh oh you know goodness and and now that we get to train, you know, people that look like me who probably also have the same struggles growing up with immigrant families of not being able to have anybody to talk to or listen to or to be heard or to be seen, that's one of the reasons why I'm like, you know, for one of our businesses, Dharma Coaching Institute, we partnered up with, you know, an incredible talent, uh, Sahar Rose. And the reason why is is because the three of us are brown, you know, myself, Ajit, and, and her. And for us to bring this back to a community where, yeah, they don't get to live on their purpose a lot of the time because they have to do family obligations or respect their elders or all of the things that go along with it, that we're going to change that, you know, we're going to change the narrative where, where we're empowering more people to then coach themselves, but also have an earlier healing journey to forgive their past, forgive their parents, have different relationships, have different conversations even. And even, you know, to the the men that I dated who also didn't have those relationships with their parents because of the same reasons, because they were also from these ethnic backgrounds that 
probably emasculated them, didn't hear them, only praised them when they were doing well in school and, you know, or, or just took the power away from them where they felt that they needed to prowl on, you know, women. I hope we're going to be changing the narrative with a lot of the work that we're doing in the coaching space. That's my, you know, that's obviously my mission because I, we didn't, you know, we just don't get to have that. And now there's a whole generation growing up that we get to change the narrative for. So that's why I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. So then let me ask you a big question, okay. which is, okay, so you get into a relationship with this amazing man, right? <laughs> Who was probably like highly valued, right? We could say that in his community. Mm-hmm. I presume there must've been so many things that came up for you in in the Oof. beginnings and oh, pre-marriage yes. of that relationship right oh yes so walk me through oh, that like how did you so I was celibate for quite a few years and and then I had and then you know there was I was seeing so many different healers and there was a time where like you know all of my chakras were blocked and especially my first and second chakras. And this was when I was traveling everywhere. And I, can you explain what that feels like? And so it just felt like I was friend zoning every single guy that I would meet because I was too afraid to let them in. And and I thought I was like, oh, they're great. Why am I not attracted to them? Oh, it's because I friend zone them so that it feels safe for me to be around them because I won't have to think of maybe awkwardness or, or anything because honestly I'm not fully ready for a relationship yet those were the things that I was probably not ready to deal with at that time and so instead everyone was a friend and and you know even my energy was very different it was very closed off but then I would say okay yeah I'm looking for love or you know and then I'd be like well why why am I not so there's so many stories around that uh, but specifically, you know, in meeting Ajit, we met at an event at A-Fest. And this was, oh boy, I want to say it was around the same time. It was like eight years ago. And this was, yeah, eight years ago, I believe. And I was just getting out of the marriage. And again, I was completely closed off. And uh, and then and he was in his own relationship. He was actually married at the time. Was very newly married, and so we just said hi. But there was you know nothing to it. It was just oh you're part of the AFS community, and you know that was pretty much it, right? Because you're AFSer, right? Everyone's like hanging out together, and you're everyone's friends. And so I even remember some of my really close guy friends saying, you were so closed off that year. Did you realize that? And I was like, yeah, actually, I, I, I was. And I was also on this different journey that I was like looking for girlfriends. <laughs> and I was so blown away by everyone having these like international online-esque businesses. And I'm like, wow, here I am with a brick and mortar. I'm like so fascinated, right? So fast forward to then when I actually did my... Uh, my self-marriage in Bali this was in this was in 2015 three months before my practice sold or that I sold my practice and I began to start to you know open myself up to love 
I met Ajit again. And this time, you know, after Bali, I went to, you know, KL in Malaysia to see our friends from Burning Man and, uh, you know, and A-Fest. And so, and this was when he was coming out of his relationship. Again, it was like, oh, he's such a cool dude, you know, great. Again, I totally friend zone him. And then a year later, I was asked to speak at, you know, this is when I was already, I was in between probably going to move from San Francisco to Singapore and I was going back and forth to Delhi. And so, and I got asked to, with, you know, the VCs that I know, uh, actually be part of this kind of incubator where I would be coaching the founders in Delhi. So I had to go back and forth and I was actually doing a speaking gig in India and Ajit was also speaking at the same event. And uh, so I was basically in that part of the world, Malaysia, Singapore, you know, in that part of the world. And I was also finishing my book. And uh, so then in 2016, he had asked and he, he was also going through, uh, you know, leadership challenge at that time. And I was already coaching leaders in that space because I was already in that area and so he said hey why don't we do you know deep dive you can also finish your book here and you know this is kind of where we then began this like work relationship in this way and so and perfect I was, in on Ajit's end right perfect. and yes so he has two forms of the story that he tells so and, and so you know for for the friends listening it was wow he just went right through the armor just like a quick <laughs> quick little dodge <laughs> but honestly i set my boundaries and i was so clear with my boundaries and i said okay if you know there's going to be a work relationship like you know this is going to be a work relationship like keep everything over there in your pants yep good luck with that yeah so, and I was so keen on that and he was like, oh, okay, so you're, so, you know, we can't just do like an offsite in Thailand and he tells the story too in a different way and, and I'm like, no, no, I, I don't work that way. Like we can do it, you know, here we'll, we'll block off like five hours or four hours or whatever it is and we'll go through everything. And so he had a lot of big, you know, challenges in his leadership at the time he was CEO at the time of the company and then after our time together he realized like he needed to you know start his other venture which became one of the companies that we have now called Evercoach and so uh and so I honestly because I was in such a different mode I was also leading with the sense of I you know, while I'm writing this book, I'm like, I also want to allow love in my life. And I'm meeting so many amazing people, but I'm, I'm, I'm just not feeling the spark. And so, and, and I was asking, you know, a friend, like, uh, you know, cause you pull your, your guy friends and your girlfriends and they're like, have you ever realized like you're, you know, or you're, cause I, I was actually, I had a huge spreadsheet <laughs> at the time and I had a rating system. <laughs> oh my gosh. Of like, okay, so, Nita. yes, I know. Note to self, don't merge, you know, business with your love life. Uh, yeah, because it's not, you know, quantifiable at all. And I had all of these different characteristics listed on the side and I would rank them from one to 10. And 
And Ajit never made that list at all. For whatever reason, he just never made the list. But I was like, why is it that I'm meeting all these people? And I'm like, gosh, Ajit and I are like great. And and we have great conversations. But yeah, he's just like, he's just a friend. And, you know, I think the real reason that I had to reconcile and I went to another plant medicine ceremony that would really kind of blow my eyes open to, and this was a San Pedro ceremony and it was in Bali and it was two weeks before my manuscript was due uh, for emotional grit and I was going through just like another upheaval of, of things and I wrote in my intention, you know, what is my next chapter to look like? And this is a very, uh, you know, San Pedro is a very healing uh, plant medicine. And for me, what came up was just, you know, second chapter was all, it wasn't about my book at all. It was all about, you know, a family and love. And I broke down because it was, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, like it was Ajit. And I was totally like, it was like he was a no from the get-go and the reason why I pegged him in that way is because I had trauma around you know Indian men and so I never even thought it was a possibility until it was you know revealed to me in this plant medicine ceremony that oh my gosh you're not fully healed because my ex-husband was Indian and so there was another yet another healing thing that kind of was revealed to me and that I had to reconcile with and like make peace with that oh my goodness this is the reason why I'm not even giving this person a chance and so anyone who's listening who experiences some of those same triggers like I didn't even realize that was a trigger until my eyes were opened to it and you can't unknow that and so being able to recognize that and just make peace with it and say, okay, yeah, I am, I'm going to challenge myself and I am going to just put myself out there because if I want somebody to be vulnerable and honest, I should be vulnerable and honest with the person that I'm perhaps maybe open to. And so I actually led the, the conversation after I had closed it off, shut him down completely, and you know we were at the speaking event, and I had said, you know what, about that thing you asked me about like two months ago, sure. And so the rest is history. Wow. And then we stopped coaching together because conflict of interest, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'm so curious. Like, so you're like, okay, we could do that offsite in Thailand or whatever it is, right? That's what you were referencing. Oh, well, yeah, like yeah, something. So, yeah, right. Ba- Some trip together as like romantic. Together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So was it like you were like after that San Pedro ceremony, it was like done, and like you went on that trip with him or whatever, and it was just smooth, and you were like open to love, or were there still obstacles? Oh, there were totally still obstacles. It was, you know, I think the 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 thing that I needed to be okay with. And for me, it was challenging myself to be very honest, transparent, and vulnerable. So at every single step. And I think because what was shown to me was, okay, this next chapter, like I, 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 I want to start a family. And so when, as women, we get that in our heads – 
for me, it was like, okay, I don't want to rush into, you know, anything. I don't want to scare this guy either. Like, but I also want to honor the fact that, hey, if, if Ajit's not really, you know, interested in kids, well, I want to be very open and honest with him that I'm not in, this is not a season of my life that I want to like play around. What I was open to was exploring the opportunity with him, but I wasn't going to be attached to it. And I think that was, you know, at every step of our relationship, because we started out as, you know, friends, we started talking about all the things that, you know, that didn't go well in our first marriages because he was also married as well. And so he was also going through his own healing journey about him in relationships in the season of life that he was in. He was in a full dating spree and trying to figure out how he wanted to be in relationship. And so, and, you know, we were on the same value system of like, okay, this is what we wanted. This is, this is what we were open to. He was actually in the process of moving to San Diego. I was in the process of literally setting up residency and shop in Singapore. So I'm like, well, maybe this is just going to be a summer thing and we'll just you know, our paths would cross and he was doing an event in San Diego and he's like, oh, maybe you can come there. And so we were just kind of like seeing each other at these different, you know, points. I had to go teach something in Malaysia for a company. And so that might have been the event where I met you, the one in San Diego. Did you go with? I went, was that the first ever, ever coach summit? Well, there was an extraordinary summit in 2016. Mm-hmm. Then there was the first m- I don't remember what it was called back then, but Mind Valley Reunion in 2017 in September. Yep. yep. So I was there. At, yep. I was there at. And that's when we all sat down and we met. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we launched the. Yeah. We launched that Mind Valley certification, that first one. Yes. We were all on stage. Yeah. That was. So that one. was in that period of time? That was, that was a where, year later. Well, that was a year later. That's when we were mm-hmm. already. Okay. We were. Yeah. We were. So it was not a summer together. fling. Yeah. No, it was definitely not a summer fling because, like, the first few months were like, okay, we're going to explore whatever this looks like. And then I think at every single stage, we were so cognizant of checking in with each other at every stage. So at, at the end of the summer, it was like, where are we at now? At the end of the fall, where are we at now? Wow, I have so many questions about that. Yeah. But I, to be respectful of our time, like I know we've been, <laughs> we've been talking for a long time. We've been and talking I, for a while. I have a lot of more questions. <laughs> but uh, the question that's burning for me right now is like, if we fast forward you know, obviously like great relationship. You have two children for now and hi, Ajit. (laughs) I'm just going to keep shouting them out with that. What are the most, and this is for everyone that's watching and me, uh, who wants to build for everybody that wants to build like a beautiful partnership. Mm. What are the things that he does as your husband and that he did as a boyfriend and a fiance that were just really wonderful for you Mm. that really made you feel safe and like, what did he do? What, what, and to this day, what does he do that yeah. is really wonderful for you? So I think in relationship, because now what we would be married, like, is it five years now? I think it's five years. So I think in relationship, what we do so well and what he does and what he's done from day one is to be so curious about me. And this, you know, he is the... He is the true coach in every sense of the word. He comes from a long lineage of coaches, but what I appreciate so much about him is, you know, he doesn't try to coach me, but what he does is he just asks like it's the first time. And, you know, in every single time it's like, 
you know, just revisiting like, oh, is, is this how you want to do something or is what would you what would you like for dinner? And even though he knows kind of like my staples every single time he's operating from a lens of this is the first time I'm just getting to know Nita because in every moment you can evolve and he's always saying okay we're we're constantly evolving humans so to think you're just like whatever you were yesterday is you know is, it's not fun and so in this way we keep things spicy we think keep things fun and we think keep things like ever evolving because it's not just like he doesn't take anything for granted and he, there's so much gratitude and appreciation and the big word that I want to share here is inquisition. Like there's so much inquiry. And so even we had a date night yesterday. And so, you know, we're like every year of our relationship, we kind of choose certain themes, right? And so this year it was all about creating because now there's there's two children and there's lots of businesses and life and having two easily relationships can get lost in translation but what he still does is you know and you would never think or anybody who follows him or sees him that he has the most wicked sense of humor or that he's you know funny as heck and he's so goofy but he brought that from day one and that just allowed me to be silly and goofy and he just has this persona that's you know that of course not everybody gets to see because he has to wear this hat of like, you know, coach all the time. Although I constantly say, I'm like, you should totally bring that out because people really love that about you. And so, and so, yeah, so not only in the season of life are we still, you know, playing with certain themes. So like this year it's exploration and sensuality. Like what are the things that we can do that, you know, Yes, we have sexy time and everything like that, but, you know, creating an experience of play, curiosity, wonder, just within ourselves that maybe we've forgotten or, you know, you kind of lose touch because of the regular mundane things. And he's just been so good. So like yesterday, you know, we basically worked out at and and we had like pool time and a date and we were playing uno <laughs> poolside at you know this hotel here in Austin and it was like and and these are some of the things that we used to do but it's just like different ways to connect and sometimes it's you know you have blindfolds and there's like you know a mix and magic of different things that you're going to be able to do and sometimes it's playing pickleball right and so each of us have now, uh, for this year, at least we've what we're playing around with, and and who knows, maybe life will get in the way and we won't we won't continue. Uh, but right now, what we're really intentional about is every month we take different turns in who's planning the experiences. So one of them is an experience, one of them is you know a, a sensual experience, and then one of them is connection. So connection could be you know, playing things like pickleball or even just Uno poolside, right? But we're connecting and we're also, you know, having that. So this month is his month to, to, to do that. Mm -hmm. So let me ask as a, as a boss mama, Yes. are there times where he's like, oh, date night's gonna, we're gonna leave at 2 p.m. And you're like, whoa, I've got like things to do. And, and you have like impatience around these things. Oh gosh. Yes, it happens. It happens. But I think the, so the, the, 
the, and we both do this because, you know, there's launches and there's this and something's due or, oh, I, I forgot to do this. And we've got to have, there is, uh, there's boundaries that both Ajit and I have been so, like you have your agreements for your agreements around these experiences. So if the experience, we've already agreed that this experience is going to be from, I don't know, four to 10 every Thursday. Usually it's every Thursday, essentially. And we knew that this Thursday wasn't going to be that because we have friends coming in town, et cetera. And so he said, okay, it's going to be Tuesday. And so those agreements were already had. So sometimes it'll be, oh, something happened or, you know. And so it's rare because we both have this respect and reverence for our private time. I mean, and 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 we're like really good about it probably 80% of the time. I would say 20% of the time if we childcare issues or whatnot. But yeah, 80%, you know, 80-20 rule. Cool. I'll take 80. So final big question for you. Yeah. On the flip side, what do you believe that you've noticed as a girlfriend, fiance, wife mm. has been like tremendously valuable in calling out the best man he can be? Ooh. Yeah, so I think for for me in seeing the beauty in Ajit is constantly celebrating him. And, you know, I can say this recent example of, like, because our work is so in with personal growth and this is kind of like our life, right? But we're human at the end of the day. We're, we're, we're going to falter as humans. I think the the big thing for me that I've realized is even if like it's like oh gosh he didn't wash the dishes you know I still go into the state of just gratitude because it's just for me thinking like oh man I know so many women who don't really have this sort of partnership or 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 don't really have you know the some of the things that we are able to create in our relationship and i think it's so easy to go into criticism mode especially when you have so many different layers together for myself it's remembering the top 3 things that i love about him no matter what and it's his goofiness and it's no matter what you know like he'll always crack a joke which is what like because it, you know, anytime you use humor, and if you're not funny in your relationship, go and take a stand-up class. Like, <laughs> play around with your silliness. Like, tap into that because it totally shifts the energy immediately. And this has been the greatest thing as parents because sometimes it could get so serious with, like, babies and even baby making and all of the things. Like, just drop into, you know, the silly mode, the silly factor. And we we literally get into, you know, now that we have the kids, it's like, okay, tickle fights. And tickle fights turn into cuddling. And we know that oxytocin is huge and also shifts the state, right? So because we know all of this, like we have all of the tools. And I think it's, you know, the the second thing is, is so it's the humor for sure. The fact that I can always bring it back to gratitude with him instantly and what I love about him. And, you know, the, the third thing is, is we're, we're, always trying to ask for feedback 
And even to this day, and this has been a ritual we've been doing probably for the last four years, is, you know, what are your three big wins every single day before we go to bed? Even if we're, you know, like there's something that, you know, there's an annoyance or we were so tired. I want to say like 80% of the time we're still asking, okay, what's your, what's your three big wins? And I'm not saying the three big wins for your day, but it's like, pointing out well what were some of the magical moments in the day and sometimes it's like oh yeah we were able to get like eye contact together (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome during dinner we touched each other you know (laughs) when the kids went to sleep so so just keeping it simple but uh to have those rituals and tools that you are able to cultivate with your own partner i think those are sacred. And for us, that's so sacred. Beautiful. I have a million other questions, but for now, when people watch this and they fall in love with you, how do they learn more? Where do they go? Ooh, yes. Visit me at IG, Neat the Bushin. I'm always there. And of course, you can listen to all of our, you know, adventures on the Brave Table. Wonderful. Awesome. Thanks so much. for enduring my round of questions wow such an honor you're so great skip so honored to be in your in your orbit oh thank you thank you for coming